Could have hung on to that baby all day. It was very comfortable. This summer, we are having a chance to benefit hearing how scripture intersects with the lives of individuals um, and our church family. Last week, we got to hear from Steve Mintz. And for the next few Sundays in worship, the scripture for the day will be chosen and read by a church member who will then share what that particular scripture means to them before the sermon. So this week, Foster Jennings has been invited to choose the text to read and to reflect. And we are very thankful for Foster's willingness. And I invite him to come forward now. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. You may follow along on your pew Bible on page 115 if you choose. Now let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Before beginning this reading, I need to set the stage for you because this passage takes place in the, begin in the middle of a story, and it's a little bit confusing if you don't know what's happening. So this comes from early in the book of Acts, chapter 5, and the apostles, in my opinion, are just sort of feeling their way through this whole thing. They know something amazing has happened, and all they can do is go out and preach and tell the story again and again. And what would any good Jewish priest who's opposed to this do? We arrest them again and again and again, and they keep escaping from prison thanks to the angels who set them free. So at the beginning of this story, they've once again gotten out of prison, and the temple guards are sent to find them and arrest them once again. And that's where we pick up at uh, verse number 27. When they, the temple police, had brought them, the apostles, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior, that he might give us repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, Fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, 
Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him. When they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of his name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. The word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, Amy sent out an email and told us that the pastors this summer would be preaching a series of sermons based on the people of Easter, using stories from the Acts of the Apostles. I was really pleased when I read that because Acts is my favorite book of the Bible. For me, Acts is full of great stories from the earliest days of the Christian church. There's as much exciting action as there is in any Tom Clancy novel. There's shipwrecks, people rising from the dead, miraculous escapes from prisons. You know these beautifully described events. People sometimes say these days when they're describing something that is amazing but true, who could make this stuff up? So just so we're on the same page, the author of Acts is Luke, who was a physician and who wrote a gospel and was the companion of Paul. He was right there in the middle of all these earliest events. We've all studied the big stories in Acts, like the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus and the missionary journeys of Peter that took him all the way to Rome. But before any of these grand events could take place, things had to happen that would set the stage for them. After all, remember what was left of Jesus' movement after his death. Eleven disciples and a few women who were so frightened for their own lives that they went into hiding. And who could blame them? If the Jews had been able to capture Jesus and kill him, surely these were marked men. I think they just wanted to fade away. But wait a minute. Amazing things began to happen. Jesus appeared a number of times on earth after his resurrection. Two weeks ago, Amy preached a sermon on the powerful events of Pentecost, when a sound like the blowing of a violent wind transformed the lives of these ordinary men and women. The gift of the Spirit created an awesome change in their behavior, in their courage, and the actions of these earliest people of the Church. Another of my favorite passages from Acts comes from just after Pentecost and describes the new lives of these earliest believers, and I quote, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It must have been an amazing time. For me, Acts serves as the sure and steadfast proof that the good news of the Gospels must be true. There seems to be no historical doubt that Jesus of Nazareth lived, taught, 
and then died a terrible death at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. But what about the really important part? Did he really rise from the grave? That runs counter to every law of nature that I observe. It's such an outrageous claim as to be almost impossible to comprehend. But the resurrection is absolutely the central theme of why we're here today, isn't it? And why the Church has flourished for 2,000 years. And yet, I did not see the resurrection. We can't prove it. This can be hard to understand. Jesus' teachings centered often on things in the natural world. He used references to nature because it was easier for his, understand, or his listeners to understand, I think. He spoke about gardens and gardeners, trees and fruits, boats and fish and fishermen, mountains and seas and storms, and the list goes on. In the same way for me, coming to grips with the resurrection reminds me of the wind, another natural phenomenon. I cannot see the wind, but I know it's there because I can easily see its effects on the things around me. Trees move, windmills turn, kites fly, and I can windsurf. With respect to the life and the resurrection of Jesus, I did not have the chance to be a witness to these events. But just as I know that wind exists, although I cannot see it, I know that Jesus' story must be true because of what happened in the days after Easter and the events of Pentecost which caused a radical shift in the behavior of his disciples, who became his apostles. They were quite sure that they had been with the risen Jesus. And they went all over the known world and fearlessly preached his message. Had Jesus not returned to earth and empowered them, I'm quite sure the disciples would have remained in hiding and tried to disappear quietly. Again, the Romans had killed their leader, Jesus, so the disciples must have felt like they would be next. Peter certainly thought so, and it caused him to deny knowing Jesus and to flee. But instead of hiding and fearing for their safety, these men acted in ways unimaginable had they not had the power of Jesus in their lives. They were mostly uneducated, poor, workers, fishermen. They had no power, no infrastructure, no money. They depended on the charity of others for food and for shelter. But look at what they achieved. They took the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth as they knew it, to the center of government in Rome, India, Russia, Egypt, Ethiopia. The list goes on. Churches were established all over. And because of them, they were responsible for the fact that 2.2 billion, 2.2 billion people call themselves Christians today. All of them, except John, paid the ultimate price for their newfound zeal and gave up their lives for Jesus, having taken, excuse me, gave up their lives for Jesus, often in hideous fashion. None of this transformation could possibly have taken place unless the disciples were empowered by an astonishing force. Call it God or Jesus or the Spirit, I think it must be true. So, I cannot see the wind. But I believe it's there because of the effects I can observe. Likewise, I cannot see the risen Christ, but the stories and acts convince me of the existing of a living Jesus because of his effect on the ordinary men and women around him. That is why this passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 38, rings so true with me. Again, referring to the imprisoned apostles, 
this respected Jewish leader declared, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. May the same also be true for this band of believers in this place. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Foster, very much. So before reading this text with Foster, I wasn't very familiar with this portion of Acts. And so now I thank Foster for bringing this text to us. Initially, I had to work harder than I wanted to. But now I'm grateful, Foster, because it's been a good exercise. The more I've studied these texts, the more I realize how incredibly significant the actions of these particular characters are to the reality that is the church today. There's a lot going on, and I am particularly taken by one character, Gam- Gamaliel. Oh my gosh, I've said it all week long, and now today I'm not going to. His name is Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is the religious council. He was a Pharisee and a celebrated doctor of the Mosaic Law. And as a side note, he also was the teacher of the Apostle Paul. There are some pretty big moves in these verses in Acts. First, we have the apostles, as Foster pointed out, recently freed from prison, and they're called to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, the council of religious leaders, the judges of sort. And they were called to stand because they were not doing what they had been told. The council was not happy with them because the apostles continued to talk about Jesus. And this was causing a stir. So once again, they are told to be quiet, stop talking about Jesus. Peter, who was the leader in this place and spoke for them, he's having none of this. He tells the council in so many words, sorry, we must obey God, not you. We will not be quiet. The council didn't like this. They become irate and are prepared to kill the apostles. But then Gamaliel gives everyone a time out. Acts 5.34 says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. He gave them a time out. And this makes all the difference. After asking the council to excuse the apostles, Gamaliel then says to them in so many words to the council, listen, slow down. Gamaliel says, look, there have been other savior types reminding them about the previous revolts of Thaddeus and Judas of Galilee. Their missions had collapsed quickly after the deaths of their leaders. Gamaliel suggests that what if these apostles 
are talk, what if what they are talking about, if this Jesus is the same and another false prophet that is only created by humans, if this is the case, their mission will fail. But, he says, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow. It will be bigger than you. And finally, if you try to overthrow and discover it is of God, you might be found on the wrong side of history, fighting against God, which isn't a good thing. In Acts 5, 38 through 39, we read, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced. The council was convinced. Now, the apostles still got flogged, but they did not get killed, and they were released. Gamaliel caused the council to pause. And in doing so, the apostles' lives were saved, and the gospel spread. And the church grew. And here we sit today. The three parties in this story are all of the same family. They are all Jewish. We have the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities who were Jewish, the apostles who were Jewish, and Gamaliel who was Jewish. And aren't they having a family dispute? Both sides claiming that they are right and pretty much ready to go to battle to prove their point. Does this sound familiar in your own life, in our country, in our families? Conflict is real and ugly sometimes, and sometimes the ugliest conflict is this within families. But Gamaliel takes on the role of peacemaker of sorts, the one who is able to say, let's take a pause. Let's see what this is about before we do anything drastic. And God blesses this action. Recently, a friend shared a prayer practice with me that I have been trying to practice. He said that, when he has a question about something or when there is something that he is considering doing, that he considers this and he makes a decision, like, I think I'll go and do this, but before he acts, he asks God to bless it or block it. He takes his own pause. So he presents the decision before God in prayer and says, God, will you please bless this or block it so I will know what I am to do? My friend has discovered that when God blocks something, his decision becomes uneasy 
There are signs. There are things that he's paying attention to and intuitively doesn't feel right. But when it is blessed, he is able to move forward with ease. Doors open, and he is, has peace about his decision. I have tried this with little decisions around my house at the end of the school year, especially aware of my ability to react rather than respond. And so I practice, because it doesn't come naturally, letting God know this is the way that I plan to handle this particular situation. Would you please bless it or block it? And then I wait. Sadly, there is no pre-scheduled time that you're going to get the answer. Therefore, I have to be patient, which is another practice. But on several occasions, I have got the right answer, I believe. Sometimes I have proceeded with what that original decision was because it felt like it was blessed. And sometimes I have changed my path because it didn't feel right and it felt like it was blocked. My friend says this has required a lot of patience on his part, recognizing that God's timing is not the same as ours. But there has been a peace that comes simply and profoundly from trusting and waiting and believing that God will guide us and show us God's way. Oftentimes, he says he's surprised. The book of Acts teaches us about the early church, as Foster pointed out. And here we discover that in the early church, there was conflict. There were challenges. And there was growth. And we can identify with the early church as we also experience conflict, challenge, and growth. The book of Acts also introduces us to the powerful work of God's Holy Spirit, this mysterious spirit. And we learn that the spirit moves as it sees fit, oftentimes unbeknownst to us and even surprising us. Just as the spirit worked through Gamaliel and helped in the spreading of the church, simply by asking the question, is it of God? Will God bless this or block it? Let's see. Foster reminded us of how the apostles, who had every reason of being afraid, instead of hiding and fearing for their safety, they acted in ways unimaginable, uneducated, poor, ordinary workers and fishermen. They didn't have power or infrastructure, but they had something bigger than all of this. The belief in Jesus Christ, who came to offer life and life eternal. The power of the Holy Spirit. Their work was of God, and it was blessed. They went out into the world to share what they had learned from Jesus the Christ. Jesus, who had taught them 
to love one another, to care for each other. Jesus who forgave again and again, who turned the other cheek and humbled himself. Jesus who turned the tables in the temple and ate with the unseemly and called the children to him. Jesus, the reconciler. This is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit. And with the mystery, which is the Holy Spirit power, we are invited to go out into the world, just like the apostles, to be like Jesus. What is God calling us to be today as God's people, as followers of Christ, reconcilers? How will we listen for the invitation from God and the Holy Spirit to be God's love in our own lives and in God's world? It is risky. We are called to be bold, and sometimes we may need to pause and ask God, are you blessing this or blocking this? But ultimately, we are invited, along with the apostles, to the one, to follow the one who offers us life and life to the fullest. As Foster said, may the same also be true for this band of believers in this place. Amen.